Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Scripture, Father Paul wrote years ago, is its own interpreter. The sermon, he continued, is at best an invitation to hear and obey the text. An invitation card has no value whatsoever when it comes to the dinner itself. The guests are fed by the dinner not by the invitation or its phrasing. This study of the Gospel of Luke began with a command that the priest, which has nothing to do with the institutional priesthood in any of our churches, let alone historical Judaism, become silent. I have heard Father Paul teach this for as long as I can remember and have taken it literally and seriously. But how does one teach and preach without speaking? At first, by simply accepting one's hypocrisy, which most cannot. Or perhaps they can, but then find themselves shocked that a wanton hypocrite like myself remains unmoved and zealous in my preaching. I was sitting on the steps outside St. Elizabeth this past summer, and an older woman walked by with a sweatshirt that read, West Side Against Everybody. Keep the faith, Padre, she said. Always, I replied. So how does a hypocrite, as younger colleagues put it, let the text speak? The answer is not a big, stupid group hug. If that's what you want, stick with CNN. Your educated, inclusive, culturally sensitive group hug is now on full display in Gaza. It, too, is a hypocrite. It even has eyes, but it can't see. It is totally blind to its own hypocrisy. Honest to God, it really believes that planting a rainbow flag in northern Gaza will liberate the oppressed. Blind as a bat, your expression goes. So I have a suggestion. If you want to understand how your sensitive, relationship-driven, evolved culture works in 2024, Watch Killers of the Flower Moon. The spirit of William King Hale is alive and well in the United States. He sits on your school boards and still holds government office. He has dear friends in Gaza for whom he cares dearly. His nephew even married one. He speaks Arabic fluently and he really understands them. I'll tell you what I understand. If you want to understand Paul, open your ears. 
for each one will bear his own load. Teaching is not about speaking, let alone learning. It is about carrying your weight. People do not learn. They are taught, meaning a teacher, a teacher has to pick up a shovel and do work with their own hands. The answer is not one's ideas, knowledge, opinions, input, or explanations, let alone hermeneutics or theology. May God protect us from the blasphemous seduction of reception history in which the academy once and for all is working harder than ever to replace the scriptural God with its own ego. Our duty is word study and lexicography, grammar and functionality in the text of the Bible. The role of the preacher is not to give a disciple something to hear, but to equip a disciple so that they can hear the text on their own dime. It is embarrassing that Western scholarship treats reshit and rosh as different words. Far worse, however, is the fact that so many Eastern clergy who grew up hearing the liturgy in Arabic, even if they themselves do not speak Arabic, fall into the same trap. This is not about identity. People of all colors, genders, religions, and identities are fully on board with the military-industrial hate parade in Washington and London. Still, Scripture is not against them. It's against you. And that's the point. What are you going to do? Didn't you hear what she said? I'm so scared. Please come. Please call someone to come and take me. Please call someone to come and take me. Okay, Habibti, I will come and take you. But no one came except God. He always comes through, especially when you don't. He took them all. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This week's episode is an excursus on the term Amalek. After 10 years of programming, the Bible as Literature podcast will take a sabbatical starting mid-February and extending until after Pascha in May following the Eastern calendar. This sabbatical will provide an opportunity for me to concentrate on Father Paul's work and some exciting developments planned for his weekly podcast. Rest assured, while the Bible as Literature is on temporary hiatus, I will continue to produce Father Paul's program 
Tarazi Tuesdays on a weekly basis. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to episode 520 of the Bible as Literature podcast. There is continuity between the biblical text and the Quran, not simply because there are references made in the Quranic text to characters in the biblical text, and it's almost irritating the way people use this cheaply to say, oh, look, the Quran refers to Jesus or to the Virgin Mary as a way to somehow establish credibility in an interfaith setting. Even the word interfaith is irritating because in our cultural setting in the West, you need to create a way for people to interact, whereas in other settings, people live together. You don't have to create a place for dialogue. People interact with each other on a daily basis. And the lingua franca of religious peoples is their sacred text, and people understand each other. But here, for example, in the United States, Christians know nothing about the Quran. They don't even understand the Old Testament in Hebrew or the New Testament in Greek. They understand the King James, and even there they don't know which translation they're talking about. It's a complete mess. But if you speak Semitic, for example, in the Levant, people speak the same language whether they're talking Quran or Bible. So there's already a common language, and people understand each other when they're dealing with sacred texts. So there's an interplay, not an exchange. There's an interplay. So when you talk about amlaq, which is the term that we're discussing on today's program, there's an understanding. There's a functionality, an interfunctionality, one might say, which is useful and helpful, but one has to be careful because... I actually made a mistake when I first handled this question of the Amalekites. I made a mistake in my understanding of the root. There isn't a direct connection between Amlak in Hebrew and the triliteral root MLK, Mem, Lamed, Kaf, as I had suggested in a previous episode. There is a connection through word study and there is a connection intratextually between the Quran and the Bible, and I'll talk about that. But you have to begin with the Hebrew and with a word study in the biblical text. And you can come to this connection through a study of triliteral roots, but not the way you think. So the root, ein, mim, lam, qaf, is a base root in Semitic languages. It's a base quadriliteral. Now, if you were to do an extensive study of the quadriliteral, you would quickly discover, especially in Islamic sources, that it means giant. And in classical spoken Arabic, that's how it's used. 
So it's intuitive for Arabic speakers that there's a connection between the character in the biblical story, Amalek, and the Amalekites, and the concept of a giant. And it's easy then to quickly make the leap that the origin of the Amalekites as being giants comes from the Arabic language, or the Arabic quadriliteral, or the Islamic tradition, but it doesn't. It comes from scripture. In fact, in the Quran, you have a famous tribe, Aad, which in the Hadith is linked to the Amalekites. They are the sons of Amlaq. al qusas likened them to them because some of them were arrogant and arrogant over people and they were given strength and brutality. It was said they were from the people of Ad, as God Almighty said about them. And when you strike hard, you strike hard. Tyrants. Surah Al-Fajr, chapter 89. Have you not seen how your Lord dealt with Ad of Iram, known for their lofty columns, the like of whom no nation was ever created in the lands of the world? So here you have this mention of Iram, which is a city that was known for its wealth and its architectural marvels which again is this concept of prestige and largesse and excess, which is connected to this concept of Amalek as being giant and also corrupt. Other references in the Hadith present Amalek as a tyrant, a bully, and a giant who is associated with corrupt speech. So there is a connection, but you can't begin with the Arabic or with the Arabic quadriliteral. And it's a qaf, not a kaf. So you have to take a look at how the term amlak is used in the Hebrew text and why the writers of the Quran, which controls classical Arabic, and to this day has complete control over Arabic grammar and how Arabic is spoken, how that was shaped by biblical Hebrew, the consonantal Hebrew, which, as Father Paul argues in The Rise of Scripture, is a concoction. The biblical Semitic is a concoction of the extant Semitic languages at the time of Scripture's writing. So to try to understand this, this association with the word Amlak, with giant, with king, these connections are interesting. I did a word study on the Semitic root in Scripture, and something jumped out immediately after going through all the different usages of these consonants in the biblical text. And the function that jumped out is something that Father Paul deals with in Decoding Genesis. And I mentioned it in the intro to today's podcast. And that is the triliteral Resh, Aleph, Sheen, which in some circumstances can function as the word Rashid, 
and in other circumstances can function as the word Rosh. Now, you've heard me complain or explain on the podcast numerous times that it is practically absurd that when you look at a dictionary in English, it will list these words as separate words when they're based on the same triliteral. Why would you list them as separate words? It makes no sense. They're based on the root resh, alef, sheen, ke, te, be. When you learn Arabic, and in some ways it's an advantage for me as someone who didn't grow up speaking Arabic, because the first thing I learned in college was ke, te, be. And we spent an entire section studying all of the words. Everyone who's ever learned Arabic knows this. You spend an entire section studying all of the words associated with ketebe. That's how you learn vocabulary. Why wouldn't you study biblical Hebrew the same way? What are all of the terms associated with resh, aleph, sheen? Because when you approach Semitic languages that way, which is how Semitic languages work, that's how they function. That's what is meant by functionality. You don't then hear scripture and assume that Rosh and Rashit, if that is in fact how they should be vocalized, which is also an interpretation, you don't assume that they're different words. Now, I also hinted at the beginning of the podcast and the opening monologue that the clue to the functionality of this root should be intuitive for anybody who grew up hearing the liturgy in Arabic. For that matter, anybody who grew up hearing the morning news. Because the same root, which means head or first, Rashid, Berashit, in the beginning, in the first, the start, the head, also means president, head, the head of the church, the head of the country. In the liturgy, I mean, as a kid, I didn't grow up in the Middle East hearing the morning news where they would talk about the president, but I grew up hearing my grandfather in the great entrance say every Sunday, Abana, Waraisa, Kahanetina, and the name of the bishop, our father and head of the church, followed by, you know, Liatkur Rabbu Ilah, when you say the rest of the petition. And then you would hear right after that, after you'd pray for the head of the church, Rais Hada Biladi, the head of this country, the president of this country. So already in my head, these consonants function as president, as head, interchangeable with metropolitan or bishop or president of the country. There's a function. So then if one hears the Hebrew, Bereshit, 
or rosh, and you look and it's the same consonants, you begin to hear, or when you look at the page, see with your eyes that there's an interconnection. So if you make the effort as a disciple, when Father Paul then makes the argument in his analysis of the functionality of Rashid in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 4, in order to compare and contrast the hubris of, for example, Nimrod with the beneficence of the scriptural God, that there is a tension in scripture between divine headship and human headship, which is folly. And there are plenty of examples, whether you're talking about the top of the Tower of Babel, the head of the serpent, the kingdom of Nimrod, or the blessing of the rivers flowing out of the garden, suddenly the functionality of Rosh, Rashid, makes sense. And suddenly the functionality of the Arabic makes sense. You hear the connection. Rosh, Rais, head, president, bishop, king, Melech. So it's not that the connection comes because you're looking at the root, Melech. It is functionality, but not specifically in the root MLK, but in the function of headship. Now, what does this have to do with Amlak, you ask? When you do a word study of Amalek and Amalekites, you find several references throughout the Bible to their association with destruction, their function as opponents, but there is a very important reference in Numbers chapter 4, verse 20, in which among the curses that are pronounced by Balaam, we have this interesting phrase, Rashit Goim Amlak. Now, the full verse in translation reads, And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. Again, you have the reference to destruction, Obed, but this translation is questionable. What does it mean to say the first? Why is it the first where elsewhere it's the beginning, elsewhere it functions as head? Now you'll say it's a different word. That's problematic. Even if you make the case that this is a literal translation or the best that you can do, you can see how once you say first, the text breaks down. This is why lexicography is of the utmost importance. And this is what I meant earlier by saying those who are familiar with Semitic languages, but really everyone has a responsibility to do this work, not to sit here and explain what they think the context is and what the story means and what the story is saying. That's none of our business. 
because people are basically intelligent. People are capable of understanding what a story means. If they weren't, they wouldn't be able to go to the movies and tell you why critics are stupid. And critics are stupid. Just because a bunch of critics from Hollywood say a movie is good means nothing. Most people dismiss the critics because people are intelligent and capable of deciding for themselves whether or not they like a movie. I mean, honestly, think about it logically. Why do you need a professional to tell you whether or not a story is good? This is a lie of capitalism meant to control you and tell you what to watch because they're interested in taking your money. If a movie is good, it's good. The same holds true for scripture. Scripture doesn't need me to tell you anything. The problem is, biblical Hebrew is not English. What do you want me to do? Rashit is not the word first. This is not an opinion. This is an empirical fact. I know that empirical facts are not very popular. And that's why people go to bed at night and sleep like babies while babies are being murdered and then convince themselves that they still have a duty to vote. I don't know what else to say. Rashid does not mean F-I-R-S-T. It is, however, functionally, I don't want to say interconnected, but it is functional with Rosh, which is functional with Rais, which is associated with, in the biblical text, Amlak. So you could also translate this as Amlak was the head of the nations. So now we're dealing with kingship or headship. And it's problematic because just as Nimrod was a problem, just as the Tower of Babel is a problem, because it's in competition with the divine headship in Genesis chapter 1, this guy, Amlak, who is a Semite, is a problem. And so are the Amalekites, who were a nomadic people. So this tells you something about what's going on in the story. Things are not what they seem. They're more interesting than what you think. And you have to deal with the original languages. And we are all responsible to do the work with our own hands to unpack not the story, but to unpack these roots, to unpack the terminology, to equip, as Paul says, katartismos, the addressee, so that they can then hear the text themselves. Otherwise, we're no better than Hollywood. Until next time. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.